Greetings, you're on Deep Background for the 2nd of February. My, how time flies when we're all having fun. And we have some great guests with us today to talk about the first uh, 10 days or so of the new administration, the Donald Trump administration. Words that, frankly, I never thought I'd actually say, but here we are saying them. Joining me today is Colleen Nelson, the head of the editorial board, editorial page for The Star. Colleen, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And the newest addition to that august body, <laughs> Melinda Hinenberger. Did I say that right? More Melinda? or less. Yeah, <laughs> I get there as close as I can. She joins us today on Deep Background as well. And we want to talk a little bit about uh, the first, uh, first week and a half or so of the new administration. Of course, Melinda and Colleen both worked in Washington for a time, Colleen at the White House. But Melinda, I'll start with you. What do we think we know about... Donald Trump after uh, 10, 11 days in office. Anything at all? <laughs> well, I'm suspecting that those who argued that uh, chaos was the strategy rather than the unintended consequence were right. I think that with Steve Bannon uh, having the president's ear, what we're seeing play out has been quite chaotic. And I so far, and I don't think that's an accident. I think that those Trump voters who said they just wanted him to blow it up must like very much what they see. Do you agree with that, Colleen? That I think we'd all agree that chaos has reigned more <laughs> right. or less, although the Supreme Court rollout was a little different, actually suggested yes. that he can learn a few lessons but and the people around him. But generally speaking, I think we all agree that this flurry of executive orders and, and other uh, you know, statements and positions from the White House uh, have certainly uh, roiled the political landscape. But do you think it's purposeful or do you think it's – my own view is it's a little more attributable to their lack of – uh, expertise, political, uh, you know, history. They don't, it's not like the Trump people all know how government works. I think it's more accidental than maybe Melinda does. I think it's a strange mix of chaos and calculated decisions, and it's tough to unravel which is which on a given day. And so I think there are some things where, I mean, they made a decision with the refugee ban that they were just going to blindside people and whatever happened, happened, and uh, they felt like that was a good strategy for them. And so I, I feel like they made a calculation there, but by the same token, uh, I don't think they anticipated everything that came next. And you've seen them since try to make some adjustments. You've seen them wrestling with whether this is a travel ban. And I saw a montage of Sean Spicer and other administration officials saying it's a it's a travel ban. It's not a ban. It's a travel ban. Don't call it a travel <laughs> ban. And so there are chaotic things where they really don't have their act together and they haven't anticipated some things and they're trying to make adjustments. And so there was talk that they were working on another executive order that they pulled back on because they realized that not having a communication strategy might not be the best way to go about this again. And so uh, so I think it's it's a mix. They're they're making some decisions with with purpose and then they're that seem chaotic. And then they're also just making some terrible mistakes as along always, the way. Right. As always, the, uh, the case with Donald Trump, we tend to focus on the last outrage, which I think is the orders on immigration and, and refugees. But let's go back to the beginning. Let's go. We haven't talked since the inaugural, uh, inaugural address, which really seemed to me to be a, a throwing down of the gauntlet to both Republicans and Democrats in a way that there's a new sheriff in town. 
but you're already starting to read stories that the establishment, if you will, is starting to push back a little bit. That they're, they're do, do we think that's sustainable, Melinda, or is that uh, because I also get the sense that nobody knows on the congressional level really how to react to any of this at all. I mean, it took some members right. three or four days to issue statements on the travel thing. You know, their fingers moist into the wind, of course. But do you think that the, that we're going to see, a, 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 you know, tension between the legislative and executive branches oh, going forward? absolutely. Or do you think Republicans will acquiesce to their well, new guy? they may acquiesce, but I that doesn't mean there isn't tension. I think that they don't – there clearly is some horror on Capitol Hill, even among Republicans, at – least in the way some of these things are being rolled out, if not on the substance. And it it will be fascinating to see, obviously, how they respond to that. So far, we have, as usual, had John McCain and Lindsey Graham basically as, you know, the party of two saying, no, this isn't what we do in America. And they have been willing to take on a president in their own party. And that's not a surprise. Right. That's who those guys are. Who will join them, we have yet to see. You know, let's be clear, though, while they may rhetorically criticize the president, whether they vote that way or not that's is right. another matter altogether. The Republicans on the Senate side really don't have much of a margin for error. There are 52 Republican members, so if you lose three, you're in trouble. 50-50 vote, of course, Vice President uh, Pence would break. But so do, how much of an outreach do you think uh, the Trump people will make to the Lindsey Grahams and to the John McCains going forward? Or do you get a sense from the rhetoric of the inaugural that, it, as Sean Spicer said in another context, my way or the highway? I mean, you either get on board or get off the train. I have a feeling it's going to be much more of the latter than the former, at I least do at too. first. I do, too. And the interesting thing to me is the extent to which normal political calculations don't apply. You know, when I hear pundits saying, oh, but they'll suffer for this in the midterms, that <laughs> might as well be a lifetime from now. And they, their MO so far seems to be live for today, worry about it tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and one part of that, uh, Colleen, is messaging. And I know you worked in the White House as a reporter and, and covered the uh, previous administration. And we mentioned a few minutes ago the uh, nomination uh, of uh, a judge for the a new judge for the U.S. Supreme Court. And it seemed like they did, they are beginning to get the idea that messaging is more important than it has been in the first 10 days. Do you sense that as well, that that somehow now we've, we realize that it isn't just what we think, but how we say what we think and how we do what we do? Right. That seems to be dawning on them, at least in a, a, on an occasional basis. And you saw that with the Supreme <laughs> Court rollout, which was a very staged, managed, highly produced affair. There was talk about how this was kind of a reality TV game show in that Donald Trump brought the two finalists to Washington and made them, you know, both sit down and talk to him. And then he had this dramatic announcement in prime time. But as far as he didn't give him a rose, <laughs> he did not. There was not a final rose. Unfortunately, that would have been a nice touch. <laughs> Although but, can I just say this? Uh, having worked in Washington and covered politics for 40 years, why didn't they bring uh, the judge out with the president uh, to stand next to him as he made the introduction rather than bring him in through a door? That that just strikes me as so humiliating to the judge. I mean, I don't want to read too much into it, but this whole game show approach, I think, could backfire over time. Maybe not. Well, 
Donald Trump is all about the reality yeah. TV show, You're and so right um, that 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 approach is what he knows and what he thinks works for him. And and so, but as far as a Donald Trump production, uh, the Supreme Court nominee was kind of his best moment yet in terms of it being a. a reasonably careful, thought-out process. They went through kind of just the the normal political process here of narrowing down a list, coming up, you know, vetting people, having interviews. Uh, For all the chaos that preceded this announcement, last night went pretty well. And Donald Trump gave conservative voters what they wanted, and that is a well-qualified conservative nominee. And there are a whole lot of Donald Trump voters who did not support many of his positions, who held their nose and said, I am casting this vote for the Supreme Court. And so they got exactly what they wanted. One of the strategies I think we also understand about Donald Trump is he has a way of preempting yesterday's headlines with today's. And, and I think there was a lot of chat that the announcement was meant to usurp all the coverage of the travel ban. But it's also, we've almost forgotten, haven't we, the whole dust up over how many people attended the inaugural and whether the pictures were right. And were those rookie mistakes, Colleen, do you think? Or was it, uh, is that part of what we have to adjust to with Trump, too, that his ego, his... Um, his, uh, you know, f- fragility in a way will be tested over and over again? Or did someone grab him and say, just shut up about this stuff? Well, many people have grabbed him and said, please shut up about this <laughs> stuff. But that doesn't matter. He's going to keep repeating that mistake because he cannot help himself. I mean, he just cannot let things go. And you saw today he's meeting with um, African-American leaders to talk about African-American History Month. And he was still relitigating the election and talking about the margin, his margins on African-American voters and how next time he's going to quadruple that number and everyone underestimated whether black voters would support him. And I mean, he just won't let it go. And so, I mean, here we are into his administration and we're still talking about the campaign. And he doesn't seem to have anyone, Melinda, around him to say, stop talking about this. I mean, in some ways, one of the great uh, narratives of the first 10 days has been the ascendance of Steve Bannon uh, in in an advisory role to the president. And he's certainly not the guy that's going to go to Donald Trump and say, you know, you ought to chill out a little bit about this unimportant stuff. You think that's right? Or do you think, uh, I I mean, you mentioned Bannon earlier, his ascendance is really one of the key things we need to pay attention to as as opposed to Rance Priebus or some of these other people who are sort of more mainstream. Ryan too. I mean, we haven't, he he doesn't seem to have a role that we know of that, that he has not been in evidence too much. I, I agree with Colleen. I, we don't know, of course, what his advisors are telling him. We're told by the advisors that, that in the past <laughs> they have gone to him and said, please, sir, desist, and that that hasn't worked out too well. well. Don't, don't we but why a lot should of- he change in that? Right. It has What he does has worked for him very well in business and in politics. He has... He has never had an incentive to change. Yeah, so that's we'll my own see. my own theory about the rise of Steve Bannon is connected to that, precisely because I think Donald Trump thought he was going to lose the election until he brought Bannon on board, got rid, rid of Paul Manafort. Remember all that sort of kerfluffle and he in never September. thought he would win. They were telling right job applicants. Our goal is to come in second in the primary. Yeah, yeah. But but my point is, when he did win, he probably woke up the next morning and said, there's one person responsible for this, mostly responsible, maybe two, Kellyanne Conway, certainly the pollster who now works in the White House, and then and then Steve Bannon. That, that's why those guys rise in, the, in an advisory capacity 
whereas Priebus and some of these others may be not as important. Right. right. I mean, you go with what works. And what what he did during the campaign got him to the White House. And so, as Melinda says, he has no incentive to change. And, and for all the chaos and all the criticism of the refugee ban, uh, we were talking bef- before we started the podcast that there's a poll out today showing that 49 percent of Americans say they support the refugee ban and only 41 percent say they oppose it. And so for all of the mistakes that have been made and um, we can debate the morality and the wisdom of of this ban, a lot of people support what Donald Trump is doing. And that's what he cares about. Right. Of course. Um, Let's uh, we can't walk away from this discussion without talking about relations with reporters in the press, which is another theme of the first 10 days. Steve Bannon telling The New York Times to just shut up and be humiliated. And I think Kellyanne Conway did did a thing about why aren't people being fired and you ought to cut loose 20 percent of the reporters around the country. Um, And, and, you know, Donald Trump's war with reporters is not a new story for any of us. I mean, that's a constant theme for the last year. Can that be maintained over an entire four-year term, or does he have to come to grips somehow, Colleen, in this environment with the way we do our job, but also the sort of the media environment that now exists in your view? Well, again, his supporters love criticism of the media. They don't they don't trust the media. They they applaud at his they applauded at his rallies when he uh, went after the media. He he encouraged them to chant and get in our faces and come after us. Yeah, right. And uh, and so uh, he's playing to his base by doing that. Um, but why, why does he do that? The ba- he's well, he won. <laughs> I mean, now you have to go. Do you not go beyond the base? I mean, I do think one of the themes of the first 10 days is his favorability rating is horrendous for a new president. It's clearly under 50 percent when historically a newly inaugurated president gets enormously away from the from the country. And he's certainly making, you know, the base happy. But beyond that, you don't get a sense that he's trying to do any kind of outreach at all. But both the right and the left speak that way to some extent, about the press. And it didn't start with Donald Trump. I mean, Hillary Clinton's relationships with people in the press were never warm, all the way back to the Clinton White House. And 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 no one ever went wrong, no candidate ever went wrong criticizing the press. press. It's very popular. And let's be clear, the Obama administration very subtly shut everybody off. That's absolutely right. Not to mention criminalized journalism. I mean, those, those relationships, Colleen, knows better than I do or not warm either. But this is on a different level in that covering a number of Trump rallies, I was frankly surprised there was no serious violence against people in the press because it was very unsettling the way he got what seemed at moments like a mob right. up in our faces. But, and and it, it's all, every politician I've ever covered complains about how he or she is right. reported. And I get every, we all get that. But it's one thing to say, boy, I didn't think that story was fair or you should have interviewed someone else. And it's quite another thing to say from the White House, sit down and shut up mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, people should be fired. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems like a really, again, an unforced uh, antagonistic relationship that eventually won't do the White House any good now. He's been yeah. rewarded for it. Yeah. And until I see readers and viewers demand better from the candidate, demand something different from people in power, 
I don't see yeah. that changing. Well, and and he says that. He says, this is the opposition party, sit down and shut up. But on at the same time, he makes himself accessible. And he still does interviews and he still interacts and still with the press. still reads the New York Times. Obsessively and, still reads the Washington and, Washington and, Post, and yes. you know, watches Morning Joe and reacts in real right. time. Right. And so, um, so he makes himself accessible to the press. And so they're not turning down an interview with the president. So, I mean, there's, there's really no repercussion for him here because he can bash them on the one hand, but then talk right. to them on the other. And, and the other part that we haven't really talked about is that there has been a pushback from opponents. At, at, Unprecedented. We had the huge rallies for women in that first weekend, and then and then the, all the uh, travel ban stuff. What impact does that have going forward? I mean, it did. It, you know, the, it, we've seen protests before, but but uh, you know, three or four million people in the streets all on a weekend. Is that just for show, Colleen? In your view, or is that? telling us something. Well, the the scale is definitely notable and and the passion is notable. The question is, what do these protesters do next? And so you had the women's march and there were so many women there for so many good reasons, but they were not all the same reasons. And so how exactly does that manifest itself into the next step? I mean, right. there's been talk about, you know, we need to get more women to run for office or, you know, we need to fight this battle, but there's not really one clear message or one clear right. uh, mission here. And yeah. so I, I was on a show the other day and somebody asked about the marches and I said, look, if marches could accomplish something, Roe v. Wade would have been overturned 30 years ago because the right to life people march every year in Washington and in, in large numbers. But it doesn't always translate into actual policy decisions. But it does. You do get a sense that it provides at least some energy for people who after the election, Melinda seemed to despair almost mm -hmm. that that now we have to live with you know, four years of a president that they not only dislike, but have some sort of visceral, fundamental opposition to, and this is a place to organize. Do you see that or not see that? Yes, I do. I think that opponents and critics of the president are feeling quite energized and energetic and are ready to protest absolutely everything he does. That might not be the wisest strategy, but at the same time, I don't see the White House responding to that. Not that I would necessarily expect to, but people in the White House actually called all the uh, protests over the uh, refugee ban, the chattering classes, yeah. you know, that these ordinary people who just got up and went to airports all over the country to spontaneously protest are somehow the chattering classes. Right, right. Let me ask you a final question, and then we'll wrap up the Deep Background podcast. We've, uh, as I mentioned at the top, we've, um, we've watched Donald Trump now for 11 days, almost two weeks. And I'm exhausted. I'll just Let's just be clear. I mean, in just 10 days of the guy, and you just want to crawl into a room and sleep for about two weeks. How do we possibly maintain this pace? Or can we? Or can he? Or do we need to? I read a, or saw a headline the other day where people were suggesting it's okay to, you know, walk away from Trump and watch a movie or... I think we're all on our phones. Now, maybe it's because of what we do, but we're all on our phones checking the twit, you know, whatever the thing is. How do we reach, or can we reach, Colleen, in your view, some equilibrium in terms of understanding what he's doing but not reacting uh, aggressively to everything he tweets, everything he says, every 
every development every day, you almost sense we have to reach that somehow or we'll all go crazy. Exactly. Right? I, I saw a comedian talking about this yesterday, and, and he said the presidency is supposed to age the president, not right. the rest of us. <laughs> and it's like we're all exhausted. Yes, we're yes. all going gray. After 10 days. <laughs> exactly. So, no, I mean, I, I think that – to some extent, the pace inevitably will slow a little bit because um, there are only so many campaign promises that Donald Trump made. He's trying to make a show of uh, touching on all of them immediately and showing that he's springing into action. And um, I don't think it is possible to kind of keep up this breakneck pace indefinitely, but he's not going to stop tweeting. Well, he's not, not going that, to stop tweeting in the middle of the right. night. And, and the breakneck pace in some ways leads to mistakes. I mean, right. that's what I, you know, again, we're talking about people trying to give him some good advice but trying to do everything at once may have led to the rollout of the travel ban, which was so even Republicans are criti critical of. Right. And some and, and the big you know, the battle over how many people were actually on the mall. Part of that is forced by this idea of, you know, it's like a basketball team always running a fast break. Eventually every once in a while you throw one out of bounds, and I'm not sure he gets that yet. Now, your I, argument is that he's doing it on purpose. I, you're absolutely right. You know me already, Dave. <laughs> I think it's partly a strategy to wear everybody out. So people say, I can't get outraged about absolutely everything, so I'll let nine out of ten of these go yeah. by. I think that, was, that happened in the campaign, that mm -hmm. clearly in the campaign the strategy was – throw 100 things against the wall, and they can't they can't fight back on all of them, and it worked for them. So, okay, before we say goodbye, Melinda, introduce yourself to the people of Kansas City. You're welcome, by the way. Oh, my goodness. Way. Thank you ever <laughs> so much. It's great to have you here. And, it's uh, great to in, be here, colleague. In, in the deep background studio. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about where you came from, your background. I'm from the Midwest originally, from a small town in southern Illinois. I went to Notre Dame. Don't hold that against me. I have worked in journalism basically forever, and here I am so happy. Happy to be in Kansas City. Right. And happy to be still writing opinion, right? Oh, I mean, yes. opinion still, so. all the stuff we've talked about here today, and I'll, you know, fly the flag a little bit for the editorial board. Opinion still matters in communities like Kansas sure City. Sure, it does. Yeah. Reported opinion, particularly. All right, great. Melinda, thanks for joining us. Colleen, thanks for coming up for the Deep Background Podcast. As always, if you have questions, advice, emails, criticism, send them our way. And tell your friends about Deep Background. Feel free to subscribe or pass this on to your neighbors and tell them to join us on this great conversation that we bring you once a week. My name is Dave Helling. I'm with the Kansas City Star, and you have been on Deep